Hey, morning. How are we doing? That was a combination of good morning and amen. Um, it wasn't planned, but that's how we started. But um, So I wanted to take a moment. Uh, I wasn't intending on doing this, but as we're just sort of listening to that video from some missionaries that it's a great honor to be out of support, let's take a moment and let's pray because they said that they've got a service happening in Chicago this morning. And uh, I want to believe that God's going to do something incredible in Chicago in part because churches like ours are able to partner with them to help further what God's doing in cities that are very dark and need some bright lights. Amen? So everyone, come on. Let's, uh, let's don't just be a participant right now. Pray along with me. Those of you at home watching online, let's pray. Come on, Lord, we believe that you're doing great things. Lord, we've heard from two missionaries that it's an honor and a privilege to support. Lord, we believe that you're doing great things through their church. We're doing great things through their outreach initiatives on Tuesday nights. And Lord, as they gather this morning, as they gather on this day to encounter you, to be connected to the creator of the universe through worship, to be challenged and refined by the word, Lord, we pray that you continue to do great things in Chicago. Lord, do great things through Bible-preaching churches in, in, in incredibly dark situations and in incredibly dark neighborhoods all across that city. Lord, that church that we're able to support and we're able to help resource, Lord, use them mightily today. Lord, I pray that people will get saved in that church this morning. People will make decisions for the first time to follow you. Desperate families will find hope in you today because there is a church willing to step out and go to dangerous places so that your light can shine brightly. In Jesus' incredible name. Amen, amen, amen. Well, I'm going to shoot Charles an email, and I'm hoping he's going to give me some good reports from stuff today, and I hopefully we can encourage you with what they're up to. But uh, as already been mentioned today, we are gathered, and we're going to be talking about communion both this week and also next week. And so uh, towards the end of service, we're going to take communion together. So hopefully you got one of the cups. Pastor Lisa calls it the snack pack of communion. Uh, so hopefully you have that, and we're going to get into that in just a moment. But to start, I'd like to read... Uh, to you the passage of scripture that is often used for communion. Um, if we're not taking a whole service to talk about communion, which we are today and next week, but rather we're taking a portion of time in the service, this is often the passage that we'll read um, to sort of get everyone's head and their hearts and their spirits ready for communion. I want to read this to you from Luke's gospel. This will be familiar to many of you, but this is the passage about communion that is often read. He took some bread and gave thanks to God for it, talking about Jesus. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took another cup of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. And we're going to revisit uh, that passage of scripture as we get ready to share communion in just a few moments. But the idea of communion and, uh, you know, eating bread and drinking from the cup and, you know, this idea of eating Jesus' flesh and drinking his blood, uh, it's a strange concept. And I think that we need to be okay with that being a strange concept. I grew up in church, and so the idea of having communion and bread that represents Jesus' body and drink that represents the blood of Jesus is somewhat normal to me because it's what I've known growing up in church. But I'm sure that for people that didn't grow up in church, that don't you know, have knowledge of the Bible and what it teaches, that this would be something strange. And this is replicated even in the first century as Jesus first began to teach on this. In John 6, we see there's a massive crowd of people and Jesus starts telling people that they're going to start eating his flesh and drinking his blood and people freak out and leave. And even the disciples who decide they're going to stick this out, even they're a bit like, so bite this uh, flesh and blood thing. And they have questions and they have a level of confusion. And it's a strange part of a worship service, if we're being completely honest and we're being a step removed, it is a strange tradition that the church has kept. 
It's somewhat odd that we would take something and eat something and, you know, as a symbol of Jesus' body, and then we would drink something that represents the blood of Jesus. We need to be okay with acknowledging that this is strange, but we also need to ask ourselves, why does this matter, and why 2,000 years later do we still do this? If it is strange, if it is something that's unusual to the culture around us and to the secular world that we find ourselves in, why do we continue doing this tradition? How is it that 12 disciples in an upper room got together and started this, and fast forward 2,000 years, hundreds of millions, if not billions of believers all over the world practice this regularly? How did it go from those 12 people up in the upper room partaking in this ritual and this ceremony And then fast forward 2,000 years and hundreds of millions of Christians all over the world, possibly billions of Christians all over the world for 2,000 years have been sharing in this. What is it that makes communion so significant, deeply important, and something that is worth continuing as a tradition? Now we may, today we may be having the small little deal and it's, you know, a little piece of wafer and there's some grape juice in here and... We hope it hasn't fermented, because that'll be an interesting Sunday, but we have this here, and it's small, and oftentimes the process of communion is, is we're trying to make it as simple as possible, and we're all sat down here, and my fear is that we're in danger of shrinking the significance of communion, because it's something small, because it comes in a nice, neat package, because it you know, may even look like a holy lunchable, but it all comes together, and it's all simple, and it's a brief moment in the service, the danger is that we minimize the impact, the significance, and the reason Jesus initiated this for believers. And so if anything, over the next two weeks, I wanna amplify the significance of communion, amplify the meaning, the depth of it, the power that is within it, and why this is a tradition that we definitely should continue. And if we look at this subject, the idea of our communion, there are libraries worth of material that we could get into. I mean, really, there are libraries of books, um, different church traditions having different focus and different emphasis. And so today, um, we're going to sort of look into Luke's gospel and see what Luke has to say. And specifically, we're going to look at uh, the significance of Passover and the lessons that we get from Passover within Luke as the backdrop. Um, And hopefully, I believe that there's some good stuff here that's going to be helpful for us. But I want to read this passage, and as we read this from Luke's gospel, I want you to listen out for all the times that Luke says the word Passover. Now the festival of unleavened bread arrived when the Passover lamb is sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John ahead and said, go and prepare the Passover meal so we can eat it together. These are the verses that preceded that passage I read right at the beginning of the message. Where do you want us to prepare it? They asked him. He replied, as soon as you enter Jerusalem, a man carrying a pitcher of water will meet you. Follow him. At the house he enters, say to the owner, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover meal with my disciples? And quick side note, uh, this reflects many times in the Old Testament stories where you would have somebody say, go to such and such town and you'll see someone doing such and such and they will help you do such and such. If you read the Old Testament narratives uh, like Kings and Samuel, you'll see this kind of incident come up again and again. Just a side note. He will take you upstairs to a large room that is already set up. That is where you should prepare our meal. They went off to the city and found everything, just as Jesus has said, and they prepared the Passover meal there. And so Luke uses no discretion, no hinting, no subtlety. He wants us to connect what is about to happen with Passover. 
The reason it says Passover again and again and again is because he wants us to connect what Jesus is about to do with the Old Testament story of Passover, which we'll get to shortly. But it's not even just the word Passover that Luke uses. He also talks about unleavened bread, the lamb, the preparation. All of this is significant in the Passover ceremony that the Jewish people celebrated 2,000 years ago and still celebrate today. And so the Passover holiday, still a major uh, Jewish holiday, major um, you know, feast and celebration that the Jewish people still engage in today. And it remembers that Moses being called to lead the Hebrews out of, uh, out of slavery. So the Israelites at the time, the Hebrews, they had been slaves in Egypt 400 years and Pharaoh would not allow them to leave. And so there's a series of plagues that comes on Egypt to try and, break free, try and get Pharaoh to let the people go. And so there were nine of these plagues that happened, and there was a, a number of things. The Nile turned to blood. There were frogs everywhere. People got struck with boils. There was hail that damaged everything. There were different bugs, and it went completely dark for three days. And still, Pharaoh would not let God's people go, and finally, enough was enough. And if you look at a movie um, you know, that looks at the Ten Commandments or the Ten Plagues of Egypt, this moment, the movies generally tell this story like it happened over a crazy weekend. And what a weekend that would have been. But it normally feels like this is a weekend where all this is going on. In reality, it was more likely a year, possibly more, that this all took place. And the Lord finally drops the 10th plague. After nine attempts of this is it, let the people go, let them go free. This is enough is enough, let them go. Finally, we get this in Exodus 11. Moses had announced to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. At midnight tonight, I will pass through the heart of Egypt All the firstborn sons will die in every family in Egypt, from the oldest son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the oldest son of his lowliest servant girl who grinds the flour. Every firstborn of all the livestock will die. And this is horrifying and shocking now, and it was horrifying and shocking then. This is a terrible story of people who would not turn to God, who would not let God's people go, who would not listen to God. And this was perhaps 1,400 years before the life of Jesus. And this moment was so significant that they needed to remember this. They needed to remember the time when the the promise of a Passover, that God was gonna send a 10th plague, but God's people didn't need to suffer the consequences was so important, it needed to be remembered every single year. And it was remembered on a specific day of the year. There was uh, instructions for the family to select a lamb. And there was even instructions on how to prepare the lamb and the type of bread they were to have. And there was to be absolutely no yeast in the house. That the blood of the lamb was to be smeared on the sides and the top of the door frame. And by engaging in this, they would escape the judgment and find freedom from slavery and oppression. That was God's instruction to people hundreds of years before Jesus was born. Is that I'm going to send a plague. It's going to be devastating. But I want you to find freedom in this. And there's a special meal I want you to partake in. And there's a ritual of I want you to take the blood of the lamb that you and your family are going to eat and I want you to smear it across the door frame. And by doing that, you will escape judgment. Get the family together, a respected member of the family or a teacher, they would preside and lead the occasion. And as the tradition went on that they would retell the story of what happened, they would eat the meal together and they would reflect on what it means. And this Passover meal, this Passover holiday, this Passover celebration, it's established three things. It established that there was a sense of belonging. This was a family meal. This wasn't a sacrifice at the temple that you lined up with everybody and the crowd of people came and sacrificed. This was a family meal. 
And this family or this community, this was a remembrance that this was part of a bigger story. That what happened in your house wasn't just happening in your house. It was happening in all the neighborhood houses. This wasn't God rescuing a family. This is God rescuing a nation, and you're a part of that bigger story. It also meant that there was a hope that we as believers, as the Jewish people, they should have had an unwavering hope that God is bringing liberation. And as they would gather year after year, they would remind themselves, they spent time in this Passover feast, they would remind themselves that we belong, this is a family, we belong in a family, we belong in a community. And our family is a part of a much bigger picture than just what's happening in the four walls of our house. And that there is a good reason for us to have hope. If he did it once, he can do it again. And the sense of belonging, the sense of being part of a bigger picture, the sense of unwavering hope, in lots of ways this defined what the Passover feast came to mean for the Jewish people at the time of Jesus. And so with all this going on, Jesus steps up to preside over the Passover feast with the disciples. Back to Luke's gospel in verse 14. When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom. So here Jesus is stepping up to preside over the occasion and he says, something is coming. I'm eager to share this meal with you before my suffering begins. Now you start saying things like this, you get people's attention. One thing I learned uh, in youth ministry is that if ever we was you know, preaching in a youth meeting and the students were starting to cut up and the students were starting to get restless, one thing I learned to say is to do something that would spike curiosity. So he would sort of stop and the students would be cutting up and he'd just kind of slowly go quiet and he'd go, you know, I probably shouldn't tell you guys this, but I'm going to anyway. The room goes deathly quiet. <laughs> or you pull a, hey guys, I want to tell you a secret. Oh my gosh, that gets everyone's attention. Human curiosity is a wonderful thing. Essentially, this is Jesus right here. I've got something important I need to tell you. Something is going to be fulfilled. Something's happening here. And if you can get yourself in mentally the picture of being in the room, you've now got 12 disciples on the edge of their seats. Jesus is going to say something. Something is coming. The curiosity peaked. Jesus is going to say something. And then he drops that there's going to be a fulfillment. I'm going to finish something that needs finishing. But God doesn't just finish things. He starts new things. The Passover meant the end of slavery and the beginning of freedom. So as they were gathered together, ready to remember how God fulfilled his promises, Jesus says, I'm going to fulfill some things too. I'm going to fulfill some things. And next week, we're going to look a little more into that as we dig into uh, the Passover passages in 1 Corinthians. But for the disciples, it's significant that all this happens around a meal. For the disciples, that all this is happening as they're together. And the same way that, you know, the reason this feast had come to mean so much is that they found that there was a sense of belonging. Here, Jesus is extending this sense of belonging. We're together in this. This is a family celebration. And Jesus is saying for the 12 disciples, you are the family that I want to spend this feast with. They didn't sneak in the side door. The host invited them personally, and he's delighted that they showed up. And because it's Passover, they would have heard the story of God rescuing his people centuries earlier. And they're reminded that they are a part of a much bigger story. And this family of faith that they belong to, they can find comfort and hope in hearing about the much bigger story God has invited them to be a part of. And as Jesus begins sharing the bread and the wine, a tradition that has lasted for thousands of years, we ask ourselves, why do we keep doing this? 
Why have we continued sharing the bread and the cup? Why have church leaders for millennia insisted that this is a part of our worship services? Why do we keep doing this? And the first thing I'd ask you to write down if you're taking notes today is simply this. Communion teaches us that we're welcomed into God's story of hope and freedom. Communion teaches us that we are welcomed into God's story of hope and freedom, that we can belong in a family, that we are a part of a much bigger story than just ourselves, and that we can have hope and freedom. Communion teaches us that we're welcomed into God's story of hope and freedom. So the Passover meal, the Passover celebration, it gave Jesus the perfect backdrop and the props to teach the disciples and the world some important things about his death and resurrection. And the Jewish tradition of Passover begins in Exodus 12, and it's definitely worth reading this week if you have a few moments, but the elements that make up the Passover feast that Jesus directly points to, the first thing is he looks at the bread, specifically unleavened bread, and at a Passover, the head of the family or respected teacher would preside over the meal and lead things, and one of the things they would do is they would break the bread. And this is why if you read on in the New Testament, you're reading the book of Acts and other places that they would describe getting together in fellowship as breaking bread. It points back to this occasion. And the instructions from Moses were very specific about the type of bread to be used, no leaven, no leaven. And as I was getting ready for this week, I read a book by a New Testament professor that Megan and I used a lot in our time in Bible college. And so I dug into one of his books, specifically on communion. His name is Ben Witherington. I want to read this quote to you that I read in the book this week. Leaven was usually a piece of old fermented dough used as a starter, a rising agent for the next batch of bread. So you'd make your dough, it would have yeast that would permeate the whole batch, and then you would cut off a piece of it, set it to one side, and that was for the next batch that you were going to make. So you had your dough, little piece, put it to one side, that would be for next time. When it came next time, you'd make your new batch, you'd then you'd get the little bit from last time, put it back in, knead it back in, and the yeast from the old piece would permeate the new piece. To make unleavened bread, in other words, it was, the leaven was leftovers. This may suggest one reason why the symbolism of unleavened bread was so potent. It referred to God's people having a fresh start, involving a new calendar, a new freedom, and a whole new way to commemorate God's dealings with them. The bread, the unleavened bread, meant that don't take your leftovers and work it back into what I'm doing. This is a clean break, a fresh start, a new sense of freedom, a new sense of purpose, a new sense of blessing, a new season, a new day, new opportunities, new refreshed hope in Jesus' name. Come on, somebody. Amen. This is good news. The unleavened bread was a massive symbol of this is a fresh start. This is a clean break. And the other part of the Passover feast that Jesus incorporated was the cup. And there's a tradition that had developed over time. And by the time you get to, uh, you know, the life of Jesus, there were four cups at the Passover feast. Four cups that would have been in front of Jesus. And each cup represents a fulfillment of a promise in Exodus 6 when God reassures Moses to keep going on his mission. So when God first says to Moses, you're going to be the one I'm going to use to let my people go out of Egypt, Moses says, no way, I'm not the right guy. God says, no, I promise you are the right guy. And after some back and forth, he finally gives up. So then Moses goes, he starts, and it's not going so well. So then God has to reassure him, therefore say to the people of Egypt, I am the Lord. I will free you from your oppression. 
and I will rescue you from your slavery in Egypt. I will redeem you with a powerful arm and great acts of judgment. I will claim you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who has freed you from your oppression in Egypt. And the four cups represent four I will statements that we can read there. I will free you from your oppression. I will rescue you from your slavery in Egypt. I will redeem you with a powerful arm and great acts of judgment. I will claim you as my own people, and I will be your God. And each cup would involve a a series of teaching, some time of explaining what the cups mean and what they represent and what these four fulfilled promises mean. But the whole point was to teach people that God made a promise, then he kept it. And if he did did it once, he can do it again. And this would have been a heavy weight on the minds of the Jewish people at the time of Jesus because now they're under the oppression of the Roman government. And so the Romans were seen as the new Egypt. We saw God bring us freedom from Egypt. Maybe, just maybe, he can bring us freedom from Rome. Jesus comes and says, I'm going to bring you freedom from so much more as I start making it possible for you to be a part of the eternal kingdom of God. But this symbolism of this is God's fulfilled promises is so important to the communion that we're able to be a part of today. That God fulfills promises. He did it with Moses. He's done it with countless people throughout the, the millennia of the existence of people and the existence of humanity, God has shown himself faithful again and again. A communion is an important reminder that we have every good reason to be filled with hope. And the other thing that is important to mention is that there is the blood of the lamb. And talking about strange things, if, if your unbelieving friends ask you about your faith and you start telling them about you've been washed in the blood of the lamb, they'll freak out. And I can't blame them. When people say things like this, it all points back to this imagery of the lamb that was, uh, was killed as part of the Passover ritual and the blood was put on the doorpost. And we, it's very easy for us to look to Jesus as being the Passover lamb and his blood on the cross and what that means. But if you look back to the Passover and look what it meant then, it helps us understand what it meant for Jesus when he did it centuries later. See, the blood on the doorpost, it wasn't an indication of the people inside the house are innocent. It was just an indication that these are people who've put their trust in the blood. What distinguished the slaves from the Egyptians was not how well they behaved, was not how much they had their act together. It was just that they had trusted in what God had said and they trusted in the blood of the lamb. The fact that the angel of death passed over this nation of people is not a comment on how well behaved they were, how much they got their act together. It's just a comment on God's grace and his mercy that he would spare people because he had plans and purposes for them. So Luke pulls our focus from Passover to Jesus, the cups representing fulfilled promises, the bread speaking of fresh starts, the blood meaning we're free from judgment, and we're now found in Jesus. And we see that Jesus gives us a fresh start. Jesus fulfills the promises of God. And Jesus made it possible for us to escape judgment and live in the blessing and freedom of God. So when Jesus says in verse 16, its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God, its meaning is fulfilled in me. Its meaning is fulfilled in me. The Passover meal that points to a fresh start. The Passover meal that points to the promises of God being fulfilled. The Passover meal that points 
So it'd be impossible for us to escape judgment from God just because we trust and we have faith in him. This is fulfilled in me. I wrote down, and um, there are three things. Hopefully this is helpful, but there are three things that we can learn from communion, specifically in the light of Passover. So three things. The first one is communion teaches us belonging. And this starts with uh, the Passover meal. It was a family meal, as we've talked about. It wasn't a sacrifice that was done in the temple. And back in Exodus, it says, announce to the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of the month, each family must choose a lamb or a young goat for a sacrifice, one animal for each household. If your family is too small to eat a whole animal, let them share with another family in the neighborhood. This was a meal. This was a meal that was done with closeness, with friendship, with fellowship. This is with people that are closest to you. And for Jesus to initiate communion with the backdrop of the Passover, he's making communion a family meal. Nowhere in the Bible does it encourage us to take communion alone. It's a community activity mirroring the family meal. This is why I hope that everyone that calls Word of Life Church home, somebody knows you. Somebody cares about you. You are not a face in the crowd. You are not just a planning center entry. You have a a community here. If you're not around for a few weeks, somebody misses you. If you're having the best week of your life, there are some people in the church that you will be celebrating with. If you are having the worst week of your life, there'll be people in the church that are gathering around you to give you love and support and prayer. I hope that nobody that calls this church home feels a disconnect from everyone else that calls this church home, but instead that there are real relationships and connections that are made as we gather together in communion, a family meal. I hope that you don't feel like a stranger that has stumbled into the family meal, but there are people here that you have a closeness to and a connection to, people that mean something to you, people that you trust, people that you're glad to be walking through life with, people that are on your speed dial. John 1.12 But to all who believed in him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. And the more I read this verse, the more it means to me because the the reality is we have no right to claim a seat at the table. We have no right to claim a seat at the, the family meal that God is pulling together. And yet we're invited anyway. We're invited and welcomed. The host, the one presiding over the ritual says, come in. I've got a seat just for you. I'm so glad you're here. And he pulls us in, and by God pulling us in, so we have the right to become children of God, I believe that relationships, connections, and love that exists between believers exists and can come, and that is a sign of a healthy church. I'm gonna move on. Number two, second thing we can learn. Communion teaches us we're part of a bigger story. Communion teaches us we're part of a bigger story. The Jewish people would, and I believe still do, discuss and retell the story of the Exodus as part of the Passover meal, but it's always told with the idea of we. We were slaves in Egypt, and we were led through the Red Sea. So even though thousands of years later, these people were not there, they still consider this story to involve we. It anchors themselves in the story. It anchors themselves in the history and the heritage. It wasn't just a case of our ancestors or those people. It's we. God made a promise to us. God sent Moses to deliver us. God rescued us. And that idea of pulling this into we, it means that even though it's a historical event, it remains a part of our story. The we element of this. And so as we partake in communion, we remember what Jesus did on the cross. 
we remember that we are a part of the story that he is telling. It means that our lives, our existence, it is much bigger than all the things that we are consumed with. We are a part of a much bigger story that God is telling through humanity. Exodus 12, 17, celebrate this festival of unleavened bread for it will remind you that I brought your forces out of the land of Egypt on this very day. This festival will be a permanent law for you. Celebrate this day from generation to generation. And as we come to faith, find our place of belonging within the community of faith, we find that our lives connect to a much bigger story and that we are living for something much bigger than ourselves, something that precedes our lives, something that will live long after us. And just the reality that there were 12 disciples in the upper room and they kept this fire burning, they kept this message of hope burning so that now hundreds of millions, possibly billions of Christians all around the world will take communion and will anchor themselves and lock themselves into the story that God is telling. I hope as a church, as we share stories as we regularly do about how God is moving and God is doing great things in the lives of people in this church and how somebody's finding life change here and somebody's finding hope here and somebody's finding breakthrough here. I hope that as we share these stories that you feel that you are a part of that. If you're a part of this church and you found a place to serve somewhere, you're part of our giving here, any single breakthrough that somebody has is because all of us came together and committed. We are living for something bigger than ourselves. We are being anchored into the story that God is telling and that story is much grander, much larger, much bigger than just my life, my concerns, my worries, my fears, my hopes, my victories and all those things that we can celebrate. But God is using us all together to make a difference in the lives of people in a way that is far much more than we could ever imagine. That's how 12 people, fishermen, tax collectors, dirty rotten scoundrels, we're able to change the world and take this message and completely change the lives of people on this planet forever. The third thing, communion teaches us to have hope. Communion teaches us to have hope. We said it teaches belonging. We said it teaches us to believe that we're part of a bigger story. And now, teaches us to have hope. The whole Passover meal, he did it before and he can do it again. In the time of Jesus, the Romans, the oppression that the Jewish people were feeling, it was very easy to see how they could reminisce and they could think about, you know what? God did this for us while we were in Egypt. He can do it again. He can do it again. Exodus 12, 11, these are your instructions for eating this meal. Be fully dressed. Wear your sandals and carry your walking stick in your hand. Eat the meal with urgency. For this is the Lord's Passover. Live on the edge of your seat, ready to see God move. Eat with urgency. Eat with hope that God's gonna move. God brought the Israelites out of slavery. Jesus brought us out of spiritual slavery. And it's perfectly right and appropriate to live with a sense of hope that he is active and at work in the lives of his people. Paul writes this to the Thessalonian church. As we pray to our God and Father about you, we, thank, uh, we think of your faithful work, your loving deeds, and the enduring hope you have because of our Lord Jesus. So Paul lists off a few encouragements that he's sharing with the church as he's thinking about them and praying for them. Two of them are actions, your faithful work and your loving deeds. I thank God for some of the stuff that you're doing, but he also praises them for an attitude and a countenance that they carry, hope, hope. As Paul is commending this church for having something right, he points to the hope that they have 
Hope that God is moving. Hope that God is doing something in their midst. Hope that they are part of something bigger than themselves. Hope that they're able to add people to belonging to the community of faith that God is building in Jesus' name. And all of this, all of this, it points to an invitation to share a family meal, an invitation to dinner, an invitation by Jesus to eat the bread and enjoy a fresh start, to drink from the cup and remember that we are part of the fulfilled promises, to remember the blood that was put on the doorpost, to remember that we can escape judgment and live in freedom and blessing the ultimate gift of grace and mercy, that we can live with a sense of belonging to the community of faith that God is building, to live confident that we're part of a much bigger story than just our lives, to live with a hope that he's done it before and he can do it again. Communion teaches us that we're welcomed into God's story of hope and freedom. Amen. I've got a couple of questions for you and hopefully have a chance this week to reflect on this a little bit. But the first one is, how can we help others feel like they can belong and be a part of God's story? How can we help others feel like they can belong and be a part of God's story? It blows my mind that this went from 12 to billions. How do we keep that fire burning? What do we need to do? What do we need to do so we can help others feel like they can belong, be a part of this community of faith, be along to the much bigger story that God is telling through humanity, that there is a place here for them, that there is a place in faith for them. What can we do to help others feel that way, that they can belong, that they can be a part of things, that they're accepted, that they're loved? How can we help others feel like they can belong and be a part of God's story? And the second one is, what would a greater sense of hope mean for you? If by taking communion, we're, we're feeding the hope that's in our hearts and the hope that's in our lives, what does a greater sense of hope look like for you? How would it change our outlook? Maybe we have an extreme sense of hope in certain areas. Maybe we have extreme confidence in one area of life, but there's another area of life where it's lacking. What if hope was poured on that situation? And perhaps as we take communion today, maybe that's something that you need to have in your mind is, Lord, what would a greater sense of hope look like? Lord, where do I need a greater dose of hope? Lord, build hope in this part of my life. I feel like I say this every week, um, but I had a chance to talk with my dad on the phone um, about Passover as I was getting ready to prep for today. And um, you've no idea how many people say to me, I can't wait to meet your dad. Like he's gathering quite a following Um, I mean, when he does that transatlantic flight and gets off the plane, it's going to be like the Beatles at JFK. It's quite something. I hope he's ready. He's watching online right now. He's going to be furious I said that. But he's a long way away. What can he do? But anyway. But I spoke with my dad today and just sort of asked him, you know, talking about the nature of communion and Passover and the things we were talking about. And he said a word that I've never heard before. He said the word afikaman. And some of you may have heard it, but I hadn't until dad pointed it to me. And he said, oh, you should look this up. You should look up a Fickerman. And so I had a look, and what I found is that over time, uh, it's not in Exodus 12, but as the Passover was practiced year after year, a tradition had sprung up where the person presiding over Passover would break the bread, and then a portion of it was assigned to be the Fickerman, And that portion of bread, the afikaman bread, 
was taken and hidden in the house. And then as part of the Passover, the children would then have to go and find the hidden bread. And the kid that found the bread would then win a prize or something would be celebrated. And it's something that still happens to this day, I believe, in many Jewish homes as they celebrate Passover, is that those piece of bread will be hidden somewhere around the house. There's unleavened bread. A portion of it would be hidden. The kids would go find it. And it's, you know, a fun thing to do, I'm sure. But this Ophikaman is possibly the portion of bread that Jesus took and said, here is my body broken for many. Here is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This bread that was the final part of the meal, it was the last thing that was done as part of the Passover, was to take this bread and to start sharing it among the disciples. Taking the bread that was hidden and saying, now it's found. Something that was distant is now close. Something that was unknown is now knowable. This is my body. Who I am, what I'm fulfilling, what it means to humanity for me to come. It was a mystery. It was hidden. But now it's revealed. It was concealed. Now it's on full display. And I'm giving it to you. For many The portion of bread that was hidden, concealed, unseen, unknown, distant, remote. Jesus brings it to the light, says, this is me. And you may be here right now and the whole idea of God, this whole idea of Jesus, the cross, all of this may be foreign to you. It may be something you know very well, but it's always seemed distant and remote. Maybe just maybe you're here today, maybe you're online and you're watching today, and maybe through something that's happened today, maybe it's a Bible verse that I read, maybe it's one of the worship songs that the team led us in, but something has happened today where God doesn't seem out there anymore. He seems close. It doesn't seem unknowable and remote and distant. It seems knowable and close. The God, the creator of the universe, There doesn't have to be distance and broken relationship, but there can be wholeness. That there can be a loving relationship between you and the creator of the universe. And this may be the very first time you've ever got to that point where you believe that that's the case. Every single believer has got to that point at some point in their life and just decided they're gonna live for Jesus. They're gonna live for him confident that they can have a close relationship with the Father, confident that only through Jesus, only through the fulfillment that He brings, that they can have a relationship with the Creator of the universe. And before we share communion together, I want to make sure that if there's anyone here that you're ready to make that decision, that you want to follow Jesus today, I'd love to pray for you. So I want to invite everyone here, if you wouldn't mind just closing your eyes and bowing your heads, just give privacy to everyone around you just so we can focus on what really matters right now. But if, this is, if you're at that point where you're not following God, you're not experiencing God up close, you're not experiencing personally, you're not enwrapped in the love of the Father because He seems distant, 
and you want that to change today, you believe and you're ready to cross that line and start following Jesus, start living a life of faith, I would love to pray for you. And I want to invite everyone here, both in the room, everyone online, if you just raise your hand, those of you at home, click the button that says, I raise that hand. Those of you in the room, if you just put your hand up right now just to say, you know what, I'm going to start following God. Amen. Thank you. Anyone else here? Amen. Anybody else? I don't want to drag this out, but I also don't want you to miss this moment. If you're ready, thank you. I'm glad we waited. Amen. Anybody else here? Online, just click the button that says, I raise my hand. One of the online hosts would love to pray with you, love to encourage you. Anyone else here today? Amen. Come on, Word of Life. Can we please celebrate some people making the best decision? Amen. Well, for those of you that put your hand up, whether it was in person or whether it was at home, I want to encourage you, this is the best decision you've ever made. I can say for myself, I made the decision 17 years ago. Never regretted it. But for those of you that did make that decision, I want to encourage you today, tell somebody. Tell somebody today that you've made the decision that you want to follow Jesus. Tomorrow, read your Bible. If you don't have one, we have some at the info desk we would love to give you. Those of you online, we'd love to tell you how to get a free Bible online. And then next week, get yourself back in church. Come on, somebody. Come on, let's celebrate. Once again, people making the best decision. We're going to take a moment now, and we are going to partake in communion, the meal that Jesus initiated. Picking the story back up, Luke twenty-two seventeen. then he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. Then he said, take this and share it among yourselves, for I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. If you wouldn't mind, if you've got your element in front of you, if you just peel back the top, clear film, reveal the bread. We're going to take this together in just a moment. He took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Gave thanks to God that this symbolizes fresh start. New chapters, new seasons, new breakthrough, new freedom. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Come on everybody, let's remember the broken body of Jesus together. And after supper, he took another cup of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you, the fulfillment of promises of a new covenant and a sacrifice. Come on, in Jesus' name, let's share this together. Lord, thank you. Thank you, Lord, that because of you, because of what you did, because of what you fulfilled on the cross 2,000 years ago, we can live with a sense of belonging, a sense of belonging, a sense of family, that we are your children. 
Lord, that our lives are a part of something much bigger than just ourselves. We are part of your story, the story you're telling through humanity. And the Lord, we can have an unwavering hope in who you are and what you're doing in and among our lives. In Jesus' incredible name, amen, amen. Come on, everybody, let's welcome back Annie and Nick.